Some operatic voices and operatic roles seem to defy all rules of nature. Today on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, the outliers of operatic voice types. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Some operatic voices are very common, like lyric sopranos and dramatic baritones. Plenty of singers fill their ranks, and we love comparing how individual voices sound in iconic roles. I'm Stuart Holt, and on today's episode, the Guild's Naomi Baratera concludes our series on operatic voice types by asking what makes certain voice types unique and what makes certain singers so hard to come by. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode on operatic voice types. We have already traversed the main categories of voices in previous episodes, going all the way through sopranos, mezzo-sopranos, tenors, baritones, and basses, so you might be wondering, what other voices could we possibly have to talk about? Well, as an extra bonus episode, we thought it would be fun to spend some time discussing and listening to atypical voices, a handful of highly specialized categories that we either did not have time to touch on in previous episodes or could only mention in passing. So we are going to dive right in, starting with a kind of voice that is an extreme version of a category we talked about in our Sopranos episode, the incredibly high coloratura. The term coloratura soprano is generally used to describe a certain category of soprano that requires the highest range of the female voice. But the word itself, coloratura, doesn't necessarily mean a voice that can sing incredibly high, it actually indicates a voice that can execute elaborate ornamentation. So the voice is very flexible and can move quickly through dense runs, turns, and melismatic passages, a melisma being many notes sung on one syllable. So you can use the word coloratura to describe very flexible, fast-moving singing in any voice, soprano or non-soprano. For example, Buffal basses sometimes need to execute a lot of coloratura, as it is common in patter arias and comic roles.
But when we talk about operatic sopranos, we tend to associate the coloratura soprano category with high pitches because the types of roles we find in that category, like the Queen of the Night in Mozart's The Magic Flute, tend to live in the highest pitch range of the soprano voice. And to clarify, the Queen of the Night role does not sing the highest note ever written in opera, but it is by far the most popular role that really reaches into the soprano stratosphere. A high F above the treble staff is the highest note that this role is required to sing. Here is a clip of coloratura soprano Deanna Damrau demonstrating this particularly popular passage. She doesn't sing this role anymore, but she was one of the greatest Queen of the Nights when she was still actively singing this. say that we are talking about an extremely high coloratura soprano voice, I mean that this would be a singer who is most comfortable singing in that highest vocal range that the female voice can hit, and is known to be able to consistently sing there, move through and dwell on those notes in that uppermost registry that most other coloratura sopranos may be capable of hitting, but don't really want to dwell in that area. In the Queen of the Night aria, the singer has to just jump up and hit these high notes momentarily. They don't have to sing pages and pages and pages of music that never duck below a high A. A voice that could do that is extremely rare, but it is not unheard of. As an example of this kind of atypical, extremely high coloratura voice, there is really only one woman who is actively singing this kind of coloratura repertoire today, and that is Audrey Luna. And part of the reason why she is able to showcase this incredibly powerful and flexible coloratura in this extremely high range is because composer Thomas Addis has specifically written roles for her that showcase and celebrate her ability to live in that stratospheric range of the female voice. For an example of this, we are going to hear an excerpt of Audrey Luna singing the role of Ariel in Thomas Addis's The Tempest. The highest notated pitch in this score for the role of Ariel is a high G natural, so that's actually one whole step higher than the Queen of the Night. But what makes this voice particularly amazing is not only that she can hit such a high note, but that she can maintain intense power, tone, and ease of movement through difficult passages that go on in this extremely high range for pages and pages and pages above the staff line. So this is Audrey Luna singing in The Tempest, which includes that high G natural.
Apparently, in a now obscure opera by Antonio Salieri, who was a contemporary of Mozart, in an opera called Europa Riconosciuta, there is a notated high G, the same pitch as the highest note we just heard Audrey Luna sing. And this high G is not the highest note ever sung on the Metropolitan Opera stage. In 2009, Rochelle Gilmore made history by singing one semitone higher than this high G, interpolating a high A flat in the doll song in Le Conte Hoffmann. And I say interpolated because this was a note that is not actually written in the score, but it is common practice for sopranos to improvise flashy ornaments in this particular aria and many other roles, especially in the Baroque and bel canto repertoire. And Gilmore completely wowed audiences with this improvised addition. Now, I wouldn't classify her as an extremely high coloratura like Audrey Luna because I highly doubt that she would want to take on the role of Ariel in The Tempest. However, she is an amazing regular coloratura soprano, and since it was a history-making note, I think we have to hear it.
The next two atypical voice types that we're going to touch on are castrati and male countertenors. It is important to clarify right off the bat that the male countertenor that we encounter on stage today and the castrati that we read about in opera history are two completely different types of voices. The sound created by a countertenor is a different type of vocal production and technique than what would have been used and created by the castrati singer, and the biology of these two singers are very different. So what do I mean by this? When you hear or read the word castrati within the context of opera, what people are referring to is an adult male singer who had been castrated before or during puberty in order to maintain the boy-soprano pitch range of his voice. This was a common practice, especially in Italy, in the 1600s and 1700s, and fell out of fashion by the mid-1800s, even though we have records of castrati singers working in the church until the very early 1900s. Why did this practice even exist? Part of it is because, for a long time, women were not allowed to sing or perform in church. But with music being such a big part of church practice, both boy sopranos and adult castrati singers were employed by the church to sing the higher parts in choral music. And some castrati were able to become very successful in opera, singing both male and female roles depending on the work, and the audience would go wild for the incredible ornamentation that castrati singers could execute. Biologically, a castrati singer would continue to grow beyond puberty to an average male height, but because of the imbalance of hormones in the body, they often had huge rib cages, and sometimes they had longer-than-average arms and legs, but they maintained that soprano or mezzo-soprano range that they had as a prepubescent boy, and that continued with them into adulthood. And according to writings of the time and musicological research today, the timbre of a castrati voice was unlike anything else people would have heard then or today. So not exactly like a female soprano or mezzo-soprano, but not exactly like a boy soprano either, the timbre lived somewhere in between. And a huge ribcage meant that they had more breath capacity, meaning that they could hold notes for an incredibly long time without taking a breath. So they became masters of ornamentation, of florid singing, having all kinds of bells and whistles, tricks and backflips in the voice that they could do in order to wow audiences. There is in existence a very early recording, in terms of sound recording technology, of one of the last castrati to be employed by the Sistine Chapel, Alessandro Moreschi. Now, we're going to listen to a little of this, but you have to remember as you're listening that when this was recorded, Moreschi himself was at the end of his career, so the voice was not in its prime, and the recording technology was definitely not what we're used to today with pristine, high-definition audio. So what you're hearing may not be a true sonic image of the castrati voice, but it is the closest thing we have to that, and it is an extremely important part of our historical recorded history of opera. So we're going to listen to just a little bit of it to give you a sense of what the castrati voice might have sounded like. Oh, my God. 
So why would families subject their children, their young boys, to the practice of castration in service of music? Well, we believe that a lot of it came down to money because boys could get jobs in the church singing as a chorister, and these were jobs that could stay with them through their adult life. Or if a castrati was extremely successful and had a beautiful voice, they might be able to make it on the opera stage, and that meant a lot more money because the castrati were the superstars, the rock stars of that time. However, It did eventually become illegal, the practice of castrating young boys, and this was enshrined into law in Italy around the 1860s, and the Pope officially prohibited the employment of new castrates in the 1870s, and by this time it's important to note that the popularity of castrates on the opera stage had significantly waned. We see a big dip in their popularity around the 1840s, and that's also around the time when we have the rise of the chested tenor. If you're interested in reading more about that time period and that particular shift in audience aesthetics and the popularity of castrati versus chested tenor, definitely check out the work of John Potter. He's written books and articles that touch on this subject and really fantastic research on it. So I think it goes without saying that castrati are no longer a part of the opera industry today. So who sings the roles today that were initially created for the castrati when these operas made their world premieres in the 16, 17, and 1800s? Well, either mezzo-sopranos singing male characters, and we call these pants roles or trouser roles, or more recently, we have seen a rise in countertenors that are able to sing these roles. So this brings us to our next atypical category and begs the question, what is a countertenor? A countertenor is a male singer who can successfully sing in the female soprano or mezzo-soprano range and is able to do so by specifically training his falsetto voice. Usually, if you were to speak with a countertenor, he would sound like he has a baritone speaking voice. And a lot of countertenors actually start out by singing baritone or sometimes tenor repertoire, but then discover that they're able to activate their falsetto with a power and strength that allows them to be heard through an opera orchestra. And falsetto singing is achieved when a male singer is able to activate the outer edges of their vocal cord and make only the outer edges vibrate. That's how males create the falsetto sound. And because the outer edges of the vocal cord are a different thickness than when the whole vocal cord vibrates, you can create much higher pitches. Because if you think of the thickness of any kind of chord or string, think of a violin versus a double bass, the thicker the string is, the lower the pitch is. And so if you think about vocal cords working the same way, if a vocal cord is very thick, then it's going to have a lower pitch. If it's very thin, it's going to have a higher pitch. So by activating a thinner part of the vocal cord, you're going to be able to create higher pitches. So what countertenors do is they really train the falsetto voice to have an incredibly beautiful, pure, but also powerful and ringing sound to it. At the present time, we really are living in an exciting time for countertenors. There is definitely a renewed interest and a lot more opportunities for the countertenor voice within the opera industry. 
And part of this goes back to a renewed interest that began in the late 1900s in Baroque repertoire. So Baroque repertoire has a lot of roles that are well suited to the countertenor, but we also have a lot of composers writing roles for countertenors today. But actually, the history of countertenor singing goes way back, especially in English history, as far back as the 14th and 15th century, although some scholars think it was used in churches even earlier, perhaps as early as 1200 AD. It is believed that the countertenor voice rose to great prominence in England and in English sacred music following the Great Rebellion under King Charles II, and that would have been in the mid-1600s, but it did not become a part of the operatic repertoire until much later. In fact, with the tradition being that women did not perform in church, according to G. Edward Stubbs, the earliest recorded performance of a woman, recorded not in audio, but recorded in some kind of historical record, so the first time a woman was allowed to publicly sing in a performance of a sacred oratorio was not until 1773, and for some context, by 1773, Mozart would have been about 17 years old, Franz Josef Haydn would have been 41, the great castrati Farinelli would have already retired at the age of 68, and a woman who would become one of the earliest operatic diva superstars, though for the record she was not the first female opera singer ever, just the first diva pop star, was only eight years old, Nancy Storace would go on to sing the role and premiere the role of Susanna in Mozart's La Nazi di Figaro. So generally speaking, countertenors are much more common in the music history of England than in the rest of Europe, largely due to their long-established role in sacred music. So it should come as no surprise that some of the best-known operatic roles written specifically for a countertenor and not a countertenor substituting for a castrati, came from the English operatic repertoire, with probably the most popular role being Oberon in Benjamin Britten's A Midsummer Night's Dream. We are going to listen to two different examples of a countertenor voice, the first showcasing a role that was originally written for a male castrati, but is now commonly sung by a countertenor, and the second example featuring an excerpt from a role specifically written for the countertenor voice. So first, we're going to listen to countertenor Philip Jaruski singing Venti Turbini from Handel's Rinaldo. And this was a role originally written for a castrati named Nicola Francesco Leonardo Grimaldi, who went by the stage name Nicolini. It is full of incredible ornamentation and takes immense amount of control over the voice to execute. Our second example is the leading countertenor of our time, David Daniels. 
The story goes that when he was younger, David Daniels had aspirations of being the next great operatic tenor. But as he was training his higher range, he kept cracking on the high notes and flipping into head voice. So while he was practicing one day, he started to see what would happen if he actually tried to sing in head voice or in his falsetto voice. And out came this incredibly strong falsetto sound. He demonstrated this for his teacher at the time, the great tenor George Shirley, and with Shirley's encouragement, David Daniels completely shifted his operatic training trajectory to pursue a career as a countertenor. So here we're going to listen to him in the role of Oberon in Benjamin Britten's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which was a role that Britten specifically composed for a countertenor, wanting the timbre of a countertenor for this particular character. Now, a term that I have not brought up in our exploration of voice types, but one that we absolutely must touch on, is the Zwischenfach voice, which is the German term literally meaning in-between voice. Writers, scholars, teachers, and critics generally lump this type of voice into the mezzo-soprano umbrella, but what this term really refers to is a female voice that is in-between the soprano fach and the mezzo-soprano fach. It can straddle both repertoires, and as Elizabeth Harris writes, some consider this the unfachable voice type because it occupies such an interesting middle ground. In Richard Miller's writing on voice types, the Wischenfach singer is said to have, quote, 
a large voice with good command of the low range and is most comfortable in dramatic roles that, while requiring relatively high tessitura, evade exposure of the very top of the voice for extended periods of time, end quote. Miller also points out that the Zwischenfach voice has the weight and color of a dramatic soprano, but will likely be most comfortable performing within the range of a mezzo-soprano. As a result, there are a lot of roles that are considered possible for a Zwischenfach voice depending on the singer, and it varies wildly from singer to singer which one of these roles they might consider taking on. But the list includes Amneris from Verdi's Aida, Lady Macbeth from Verdi's Macbeth, Kundry in Wagner's Parsifal, Ortrud in Wagner's Lohengrin, Santuzza in Mascagni's Cavalleria Rusticana, Carmen from Bizet's Carmen, Leonora in Beethoven's Fidelio, the composer in Richard Strauss's Ariadne of Naxos, Princess Evelie in Verdi's Don Carlo, Dorabella in Mozart's Così Fan Tutte, Leonora in Donizetti's La Favorita, Octavian in Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, Dalila in Sasson's Samson et Dalila, and Venus in Wagner's Tannhäuser. So this singer could potentially have both soprano and mezzo-soprano roles in their repertoire, and they can dip their toe into more lyrical roles as well as more dramatic roles, and so there's a lot of debate surrounding exactly what a Zwischenfach voice is and what the difference is between a lyric mezzo and a Zwischenfach voice, or a dramatic mezzo and a Zwischenfach voice, or a dramatic respinto soprano and a Zwischenfach voice. Try and say the word Zwischenfach ten times fast. Not so easy. But the undisputable part of this category is that the voice is able to successfully pull off roles that lie in that in-between area, that straddle these traditional boundaries of soprano and mezzo-soprano, and they are able to execute passages of lyrical connection and dramatic power. Because of this special combination, some of the most fiery roles in opera can be found in the Zwischenfach territory, and so the singer also needs to have a strong stage presence. And as I said, what roles a Zwischenfach singer chooses to take on is going to differ from singer to singer quite dramatically. Because there are so many possibilities, it is unlikely that a Zwischenfach voice will try and tackle all of the possibilities I just mentioned. The repertoire really is wildly different from singer to singer, depending on the strengths of their voice and the demands of the roles. Some really legendary Zwischenfach voices include Fiorenza Cossotto, Krista Ludwig, Giulietta Simeonato, Tatiana Troianos, Maria Ewing, and Grace Bumbry. For our examples, we will hear Tatiana Troianos, whose voice was described in Opera News by Corey Ellison as being, quote, a paradoxical voice, larger than life, yet intensely human, brilliant yet warm, lyric yet dramatic. It was the kind you recognize after one bar and never forget. End quote. Peter G. Davis also described her voice in this way, saying, quote, It was a dark, burnt amber texture and was distinctive and alluring, smoothly consistent from the lowest contralto depths to the stunningly high B flat. Troyanos sang a lot of Zwischenfach roles, but she mostly leaned towards the roles that were more squarely within mezzo territory only very occasionally taking on roles that were more in the soprano range. But this was an incredibly versatile voice, and she sang a lot of pants roles as well. 
So here we're going to listen to three different excerpts in this order. First, we will hear the habanera from Bizet's Carmen, and this is a role that is most often sung by a more lyrical soprano. The first Carmen I ever saw live was Alina Garancha, to give you an idea of the type of Carmens we see on stage today. Example number two will be a short excerpt from Badoro Pupile from Handel's Giulio Cesare, and this is the role of Cleopatra. It's a Baroque opera, and it is most often sung by sopranos. So for some context, the last time that the Met did Giulio Cesare several seasons ago, soprano Natalie Desay was cast in the role of Cleopatra. And then the third example is Dalila's big aria from Samson a Dalila, and this is a role that is often sung by dramatic mezzos or contraltos. So here is Tatiana Troianos in this variety of excerpts showing you three very different roles that she sang throughout the span of her career. Thank you. 
far in our exploration of more rare voices, we have touched upon singers who are able to sing incredibly high in comparison to the average range of other singers in their categories, and we've also looked at this special in-between type of voice, but what about voices that specialize in the lowest regions of their respective categories? So this brings us to the contralto, and we touched upon this particular category in our episode on mezzo-sopranos, but I think it's worth revisiting because it really is a very special type of voice, and it is very, very rare. The difference between a mezzo-soprano and a contralto is both in the timbre of the voice and in the actual pitches that the voice can hit with the greatest ease. The contralto range lies between a female mezzo-soprano and a male tenor, often able to dip lower than your average mezzo with incredible depth, power, and substance in the sound. A true contralto can bring the chest voice into the lowest parts of their range and the highest parts of the range, giving the sound a very unique, rich, dark, and smoky kind of quality. I will quote again Eric Myers from Opera News, where he stated that, quote, The sound of a true contralto is huge and plummy, with organ-like tones covering a range from F below middle C to A above the treble clef, often with extensions at either end. The deep, resonant, open-throated contralto sound is unique, as if it were being drawn up out of the earth. It's often found in bodies that are tall, wide, and solidly built with an ample chest cavity to support the tone, end quote. Now, there isn't a huge amount of roles written for true contraltos. We do have quite a few in the very, very early Venetian operas, often playing the role of the old witch or grotesque sorceress. And then in Verdi, we have a few contralto roles. Ulrika in Imbalo and Mascara is one very popular contralto role. Uh, in The Ring, we have Erida. And then in Peter Grimes, we have The Ante. And Dialogue of the Carmelites, we have The Old Prioress. But that really is quite slim pickings in terms of operatic roles that a contralto can take on. So usually contraltos do a lot of their work in sacred repertoire and in concert repertoire because there is a lot more roles written for them or parts written for them in oratorios by composers like Bach, Handel, and Mendelssohn. And to really get a sense of that incredibly low, dark, resonant sound, we need to listen to some of these amazing voices. So we're going to turn our attention to singers that we did not get to listen to on our mezzos episode. And we're going to start with a contralto legend, Marian Anderson. Born in 1897, Anderson didn't sing at the Met as much as everyone now wishes she had, as the Met did not allow black singers to appear on stage until 1955. She made her debut at the Met that same year, singing the sorceress Ulrika in Verdi's In Balo and Mascara, and a recording from her performance from that season is used on NPR's Talk Like an Opera Geek as an example of a dramatic contralto voice. In that description, she is described as having a rich, deep, and velvety sound. For our example, we're going to hear a recording of Anderson singing Here de Lambs a-Crying from a series of spirituals that she recorded, and I chose this one because Hearing her voice with just a piano accompaniment really allows you to focus on the timbre of the sound, and the range that she is singing in really highlights that lower 
range of her voice that we all love about the contralto sound. A true contralto voice can be almost haunting in how dark and soulful it can be, the kind of sound that gives you goosebumps when you hear it. And one of the most incredible examples that I came across in my research for this episode is sung by Polish contralto Ewa Podlisz, singing in a 1938 film soundtrack composed by Prokofiev. This is admittedly not opera, but Podlesh sang frequently on the opera stage, and this particular musical excerpt just captures the voice so well that I think it is well worth the listen.
And for an example of a singer who has really established herself as one of the leading contraltos of the present time, we turn to Canadian contralto Marie-Nicole Lemieux. Lemieux already has some great mezzo-soprano and contralto roles under her belt, including Mrs. Quickly in Verdi's Falstaff, the title role of Vivaldi's Orlando Furioso, the title role in Handel's Giulio Cesare, Isabella in Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri, Zita in Puccini's Gianni Schicchi, and Genevieve in Debussy's Pelias and Elizande. And she also has numerous recordings to her name. So here we're going to listen to her in the title role of Handel's Orlando Furioso singing Nel Profondo. So if you are intrigued by the contralto voice and you want to learn more, I highly suggest checking out a really fantastic website I came across, contraltocorner.com. It is an archive of information about contralto singers, created and curated by James Edward Hughes. Other legendary contraltos that we do not have time to indulge in today, but whom you can find all kinds of information about and recordings of, include Clara Butte, Kirsten Thorberg, Maureen Forrester, Kathleen Ferrier, Ernestine Schumann-Heinck, and Astra Desmond, to name just a few. And there are several up-and-coming contraltos, young singers that are definitely worth keeping tabs on as they begin their careers, and you can find bios and recordings and information about them on contraltocorner.com, one of whom I'll just mention was born right here in New York City, Nicole Mitchell. So definitely check out all the different singers that are coming up in this category as there really are some fantastic voices to listen to. For our last atypical voice, we are going to briefly touch on the lowest of all human voices, the octavist bass. This is a kind of bass singer that you actually don't really find in opera, but they are very common in sacred music, especially in the Russian choral tradition. Listen to this little excerpt from Russian choral liturgy and listen for the lowest voice within this choral mixture. That incredibly low bass that you hear is the octavist voice type. 
And the music that is written in this tradition is absolutely beautiful. It's the kind of low, rich sound that feels like it's reaching down into the depths of the earth. Octavist basses often sing lower than the lowest notated pitch in opera, and actually that's in the role of Osmine in Mozart's Abduction from the Seraglio, and they definitely sing lower than the average operatic basso profondo. They can sing oftentimes at least a fifth lower, if not more, many reaching down a whole octave below the lowest note on the bass staff. To end our exploration of extremely rare voices, we're going to hear Glenn A. Miller, an octavist bass who made history by being the first to record a version of Chesnikov's Don't Reject Me in My Old Age, as the composer wrote it, with an incredibly low G at the end, and set as a bass octavist solo part against a choral accompaniment. That was Metropolitan Opera Guild lecturer Naomi Baratera talking about atypical voice types. If you enjoyed this episode, take our complete tour of operatic voices. Check out episode 5 on sopranos, number 70 on mezzos, number 10 on tenors, 74 on baritones, and number 78 on basses. We'll be back on September 20th for a special episode in preparation for opening night at the Met. Until then, I'm Stuart Holt, and thank you for listening.